If you will, turn in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our study through the Word. Now you'll remember that the church was growing. They were uh, holding all things together in communion and community with uh, one another. And various different people were coming and, and giving gifts to the church. You'll remember Barnabas had come and given a, a gift to, to the church. And, and then we saw Ananias and Sapphira and how they sold a piece of property. And they came and they brought the proceeds and, and gave it to the church. But you'll remember remember that there was hypocrisy. They pretended that it was the whole amount when in fact it wasn't. They were lying in effect to the Holy Spirit. And, and you remember that God judged uh, that. And, and you remember that great fear came uh, over the, uh, the people. And, and believers, they, they were afraid to join that group that was holding all things together. So that group continued as it was, but the church was being added to, and, and we see more and more believers were coming in. The apostles were told that they were not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus, but they continued to teach and preach. And, and so we saw that the religious leaders came and arrested them for a second time, put them into prison overnight and were gathering the Sanhedrin in the morning and you remember in the middle of the night an angel of the Lord comes and and opens up the prison and leads the disciples uh, out but instructs them that the next morning that they are to go back into the temple precincts and that they are to continue to teach and preach Jesus and you'll remember the next morning there they were faithfully out there and teaching and preaching and the Sanhedrin gathered together and they sent for the prisoners to be brought to them but they come the guards and come and they find the prison securely closed and they find guards that are guarding the cell but when they open the cell the the disciples are not there and they go back and give a report to the Sanhedrin that's waiting to hear the matter and and there is no explanation it says that they they wondered what the outcome of these things were going to be they didn't have to wonder long the disciples were discovered quickly. They were in the temple preaching and teaching Jesus. And, and they were brought before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest, he says, did we not expressly communicate to you that you were not to, to be teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus? And, and you remember that Peter said, should we obey man or should we obey God? And he says that we preach in Christ whom you murdered by putting on a tree and, and hanging him there. And, and he says that, you know, and preaches the gospel now to them and, and says that the Holy Spirit is available to all who will call upon him. And you'll remember the response then of the, uh, of the Sanhedrin. They were murderous now in their intent. They, they could not oppose the words that Peter was declaring and they could not uh, undo the miracles and signs and wonders that, that were being done. And, and so their only option left now is to just eliminate them, to just kill them. And you remember that Gamaliel, who was a, a chief rabbi, a chief teacher of their day, he asked that 
Peter and John be put out and he said, men, brethren, Israel, consider carefully the course of action that you are uh, about to undertake. And, and he speaks a reason to them. You remember he brings up some history lessons uh, for them. He says, you, you remember Thutis in and, and the rebellion? You remember Judas of Galilee in the rebellion? He says, they came to nothing. He said, if this work is of man, it's going to fizzle out. There, there, there is no need to overreact uh, in this situation. But if this is of God, then we will not be able to stop it, lest we even be found to be fighting against uh, God. And, and you remember that the, that, that penetrated, and, and the Sanhedrin heard that, and and so they, they agreed with it. You remember that they told them not to teach or preach any longer in the name of Jesus. They beat them and, and they sent them out. And, and it says that they, they rejoiced, having been counted worthy to suffer for, uh, for the glory of the Lord. And the church just continues to grow continues to grow and grow and grow. At last count, the, there was 5,000 men. And, and so when you add women and children, families, and all, you're talking about roughly 20,000 believers now. That, that's T-Mobile Arena plus 2,000 trying to get in after a capacity crowd has got it filled up. Can you imagine a, a mega church that fills uh, T-Mobile, but that's the size now of the church, and here's these 12 apostles, and they're trying to figure out how to uh, have services, how to uh, run home fellowships and, and get communion for everybody, and continuing in the apostles' doctrine and prayer and in, in, in unity and, and, and the needs of 20,000 people and new believers' classes and, and all that they needed to do, they, they, they have now this tremendous administrative challenge that is before them. And, and God is continuing to lead and guide and to help them and to equip them. But they're going to definitely have to deal with the issue of priorities. Priorities, priorities priorities. We, they are getting to the point where they're too busy to do everything. And so in the absence of being able to accomplish everything, you have to determine what is more important, what is most important. And, and that is going to be the challenge of the disciples. It's a challenge not just for the disciples, but it's a challenge for each and every one of us today. We, we all have to prioritize to make sure that, uh, that the most important things get the most important amount of time and attention. We begin here in this sixth chapter, the book of Acts, verse 1, and it says, Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So, we see here that it says that the number of disciples was multiplying. You remember how earlier the Lord was adding to the church uh, each day those that were being saved. So we had the addition uh, of God to the church. Then we had the subtraction. You remember Ananias and Sapphira. They are removed uh, from the body of believers. And what was the result uh, after there was the subtraction? We see now multiplication taking place. And and I find 
find that to be so true in our lives that, that God will be blessing us and then we go through a pruning where God will prune back in our lives. And, and what is the end result after the pruning? Then there's a multiplication of blessing that takes place in our lives. And, and so here we see that the church is multiplying now the, the number of believers. But it says that there was a dispute that arose and it, it says that it was between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Who are the Hellenists and, and who are the Hebrews? What is, what is that division? Well, the Jews were really divided along those lines and, and you'll remember that back in those days, the common language was Greek. When Alexander conquered the world, he brought the Greek culture and the Greek language to, to the whole world. And so that was the language that the world spoke. There were Jews that spoke Greek that didn't know Hebrew, that did not know their, their own language. And the, the Hebrews, those were the ones that they knew Hebrew and spoke Aramaic. And that was the the language of the Jews. And, and so those Jews that spoke Hebrew looked down upon the, the Jews that didn't speak Hebrew, that spoke the world's language and saw them as, as less spiritual as, as them. And, and so whether you were a Hellenist or a Hebrew, there was a, a division. Then so here in the distribution, now you remember there was a group that was holding all things together. The rest of the church was just the, the body of believers, but there was this group and, uh, and so there would be a, a distribution to the, the widows on a daily basis. And, and we see that the dispute ran like this, that the Hellenists who are feeling that they're less than to begin with felt that the distribution coming to their widows was less than the amount that was going to the Hebrew widows. And so they were upset with that and felt that that was a, a discrimination against them. And, and so they complain. And, and it says in verse 2 that then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. They want the apostles to, uh, to get involved in this and to start you know, solving this problem that they've got. And, and here are the disciples, man, they're trying, to, they're trying to run new believers classes and have services and, and all. And, and now it's all the way down to, you know, is the distribution to the widows being equitable and being fair? And the apostles uh, now, they say, it's not good for us to, uh, to start getting involved in micromanaging the, the church here. It's not good, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, the word for table there is the word that you can eat food at. That's one type of table. But that's also the same word for the money tables, uh, uh, the money changer tables, and, uh, and place of business transactions uh, here. And so it's not good for us to leave the word to, to, to start to administrate here in, in this uh, manner. And, and therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom whom we may appoint uh, over this business. And, 
And so the solution is to create a, a subcommittee here, pick out uh, these men that have these qualifications and, and let's empower them into the responsibility of, uh, of administration fairly and equitably in this situation. It says, pick out seven men. Now, seven was the typical number uh, that was uh, used to handle public business in Jewish towns and official councils. And so so that was very standard to, to put together seven uh, of them. And, and notice that it is men. We see that God has ordained the headship of men and that men are to be the head of their marriages. They are to be the head of their families. They are to be the heads in the church. And this is the, the structure that God has uh, ordained. We see that women play vital roles uh, uh, in the scriptures and women such as Dork and Lydia and Phoebe and Priscilla and Philip's daughters were greatly used by God. But nevertheless, God's design for the church is that men would assume the leadership role. So it was to be seven men that now had these qualifications. They were to be men that had a good reputation. They had to be men of integrity above reproach, the same as is required for elders or deacons that are set forth, we find in Timothy and Titus. They have to be servants that set forth an example of godliness. And so they have to have a good reputation inside the church and they have to have a good reputation outside of the church as well. They must be full of the Spirit. They must be yielded to the Spirit, allowing God to control them and direct them in, in their lives. And, and, and they must have wisdom. They must have biblical knowledge and, and practical wisdom to be able to apply the biblical truth to the situations of, of everyday life. And so these were the qualifications now that they were to seek from the seven men that they were going to have administrate. In verse 4 it says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The focus of the church has to be on the word of God and on prayer. And, and this is the, 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 the chief responsibility of the pastor. Many in the ministry today are so busy. The administration of running a church, the enormous complications of digital church along with physical church, new environments, social media, the challenges today of administrating a church far exceed what they used to be. And so many pastors are getting caught up and tied up and bogged down in the administration of the church that they don't have the time to study the word of God and to be able to properly prepare messages and, and be spending time in prayer. And, and it's a challenge back then. It was a, a challenge. It's a challenge today. And, and so we see here that there needs to be a prioritizing that takes place. The apostles now assessed the situation and, and they were saying, we cannot get personally involved in this. We will raise up men who can oversee this, but we are gonna continue to do what we have been called to do. You remember that? 
that Peter was told by Jesus, feed my sheep. That's what Peter was called and commanded, not administrate in the distribution to the widows, but feed my sheep. And that needs to be the, the priority. The church needs to continually teach the word of God that people can grow in the grace and uh, the knowledge uh, uh, of our Lord and Savior. And so seeking priorities, making sure that we keep the most important things, the most important things. It says, <coughs> verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from uh, Antioch. Uh, and so here are the seven. Luke records them for us. Stephen, we're going to see that Stephen is going to play a pivotal role really in the spread of the gospel beyond uh, Jerusalem. We are going to see how the persecution that was connected with his martyrdom really propelled the church out of uh, Jerusalem. Philip is also going to play a prominent role uh, in Acts. We are going to see how he takes the gospel to the Samaritans and, and then after the Samaritans he is used by the Lord to go and minister to the Ethiopian eunuch and, uh, and so the spread of the gospel through Philip. The, the others uh, we see here, we don't really know uh, anything about them other than what is mentioned uh, here, but, but one of the things that we do recognize is that all sem of seven of them are Hellenistic names. All of these are Gentile names. Now the Gentiles come, uh, the Gentile-speaking Jews come complaining that they're not getting a fair share and the seven men that they end up appointing are all Hellenists. It's like, okay, then you administrate it and you look out after it. And, uh, and these men were uh, filled uh, now with those qualities and and characteristics. It says, verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands uh, on them. The, uh, the laying of hands on someone was a, a Jewish practice uh, of uh, setting a person apart for special service. We, we today in our church will lay hands when we ordain a pastor. We will lay hands. We are setting them apart to the work of the ministry. Now, I want you to know that when we ordain a pastor, we're not making them a pastor. Ordination doesn't make a person a pastor. God is the one that makes pastors and, and places a calling on their lives to be shepherds and to be servants. We, when we ordain somebody, we've ordained several different pastors here, Pastor Greg, Pastor Scott, Pastor Rudy, all of them have been ordained here at the church. It, it was a laying on of hands, which says that we are conferring on them a title that is obvious to everybody else. And almost all of those situations, if not all of those situations, people were referring to them as pastors even before they were ordained and they were constantly having to say, no, I'm not a pastor. 
pastor. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a pastor. I'm not. Okay, never mind. You know, and, and so it was the, the recognition. People already saw them functioning in that capacity. And all we're doing is giving an official recognition to, to what God has so obviously done. Here they raise up the seven and they pray and they lay hands uh, upon them and uh, establishing uh, now their, uh, their office. It says in verse 7, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to, to the faith. We see that the word of God then just continued to spread. We see more once again the multiplication of disciples. There were so many converts being added that they lost count. Now there was no longer any number that could be given. But what was notable here is that Luke records that a great many of the priests now were, were being saved. The priests, the priests from the temple. They were now getting saved. Now, you remember that the priests were from the tribe of Levite. The, the Levites were the priests, and there were the 12 tribes. And when they came into the land, the land was separated by geographic territories, and the tribes each had their geographic territory, except the Levites. The Levites didn't get their own geographical area. The Levites were given towns that were spread out through everybody's territory. They were the, the ones that were teaching the, the Bible and running the synagogues uh, throughout the entire land. What would happen is, is that the Levites were divided up into 24 groups, segments. They were called courses. And the, each course uh, would come and serve at the temple for two weeks out of the year. And then they would all come together during the, the great feasts. But these were the priests now that knew the word of God, that studied the word of God in their local synagogues and taught the word of God. And, and now, knowing the word of God, they began to see that the entire Old Testament is nothing other than a portrait of Jesus Christ. And, and when now it was preached that Jesus is the Messiah and they started to reason with them through the scriptures, these men that knew the scriptures and that were serving at the temple, they suddenly now start to get saved. And, and so into the early church comes the priests now that had been serving there at the temple. And, uh, and so the, the work of God that was going on, amazing as the church just continues to explode. And, and it says in verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs uh, among the people. Stephen was a man who was full of faith. It means that he was filled with faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so, by faith, we're saved through Christ. And that, not of ourselves, it's a free gift that is given lest anybody would, would boast. And, and so, we see here that Stephen is a man that is just full of faith. Full, 
and trusting in God and the leading of God. Not only was he full of faith, but he was full of power as well. Power that comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us, empowers us, equips us. And Jesus said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And, and so we see that Stephen is filled with great power. But it says now also that he is able to do signs and wonders. This is the first time that we see anybody other than the apostles now that are able to do signs and wonders. And, uh, and so uh, here, verse 9, then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with uh, Stephen. And and so Stephen is evangelizing. He is continuing to preach that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the scriptures and that he has come in and he's ministering in the synagogues. Here we see that there are three different synagogues that are mentioned, Cyrenians and Alexandrians and Cilicia. Remember that the temple was where you came and brought your sacrifices, but you were connected as a Jew to the local neighborhood synagogue wherever you were plugged into and and oftentimes the synagogues in the city there in Jerusalem there were many many synagogues were were gathered together ethnically by common languages where they had come from here's three different synagogues uh, now that are uh, made up of Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Stephen is going and ministering to them he is taking the the gospel the good news and and it says and they were disputing now disputing here in the original language doesn't mean arguing it's not that they were shouting and yelling and fighting. It, it means a very organized uh, debate uh, where you would put forth uh, your thoughts and, uh, and no doubt the debate centered on the death and the resurrection and the messiahship of Jesus and the issue of the Mosaic law and the rituals uh, now. And so verse 10 and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. The human reasoning, their human reasoning was no match for the, the spirit-given wisdom. And so the spirit by which he, he spoke, he spoke unarguable truth with a potent delivery. Unarguable truth. And with a powerful delivery. Jesus said in Luke's gospel, chapter 21, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And so here is Stephen and, and he is disputing with them and debating with them and, and they are frustrated. They have no answers to the things that, that Stephen is saying. And so, once again, what do they resort to? They seek to destroy Stephen. And they will do it by nefarious methods if necessary, but they want him gone. And it says, and then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
blasphemy was a charge if convicted of uh, that came with capital punishment. In Leviticus chapter 24, it says, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. And, and so now, what are they doing? They are seeking the death of Stephen by trumping up in charges of blasphemy. It was the very same tactic that we saw used against Jesus, where they said that he had blasphemed and they were seeking now to get all of these false witnesses to be able to uh, take and, uh, and testify, but none of, their, none of their testimony lined up. And, and you remember in the illegal trial of Jesus. And, and it says, and they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes. In other words, they started rumors and they started a character assassination. They made up lies and began to spread them that, uh, that this is what Stephen is doing. And, and this started to get everybody uh, upset. And, and it says, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. And and so here we have now Stephen standing before the, the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that had just had Peter and John stand before them twice, and, and now Stephen is standing before them. And they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And so these false witnesses now accusing Stephen of, of declaring that the temple is going to be destroyed and, and the law that was given to Moses is, is now no longer sufficient for salvation, but now it is faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself had said, you'll remember, that not one of these stones is going to remain upon another stone. He was the one that had prophesied the destruction now. But remember also, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days uh, uh, I will rebuild it, speaking of his body. And, uh, and so here we see in some of the charges. We see that they referenced Jesus uh, of Nazareth. That is, again, an expression of contempt uh, and seeking to discredit in Jesus. And, uh, and so here we see that uh, what had really happened uh, is, is that uh, reality had replaced ritual. You see, the entire law all points to Jesus Christ. The rituals point to Jesus Christ. But now that Christ had come, there no longer needs to be the, the rituals. The reality has come. The typology was now only in place until the authentic had arrived. The forgiveness of sins you would take underneath the law, you would take a lamp. You would bring it to the priest. You would put your hands on the head of the lamp and you would confess your sins, your sins then being transposed onto the innocent lamp and then they would sacrifice the lamp. The innocent 
paying the price uh, for the guilty and, and substitutionary atonement. This was the typology, but Jesus is the Lamb of God. And now what we do is we, we put our hands on the head of the Lamb of God, on, upon Christ, and we confess our sins. And then what? And Jesus went to the cross, the innocent dying for the guilty, and we are covered underneath the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This was all the typology. But today, Lambs don't need to be slaughtered anymore. Why? Because the Lamb of God has come. We don't need to continue to do what was just a typology that was foretelling what was going to be the reality. And, and so these things have passed away underneath the law, all of it pointing forward to what God was going to do in Christ. And so as, as Stephen is declaring these things, they saw it as an attack upon their religion instead of the fulfillment of the law. Jesus said that he never came to destroy the law, that every single bit of the law is going to be fulfilled. Not one daughter tittle is going to pass away without being fulfilled, but Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And so the reality in Christ had replaced the ritual, which was the schoolmaster to prepare, to train you, and to lead you towards him who was to come. And it says, And all sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, and saw his face as the face of an angel. All these false witnesses are coming up and saying, he's speaking against the temple. He's speaking against Moses. He's trying to destroy this. And, and they're looking at, who is this man that is doing all of these terrible things? And, and they turn and look, and there's Stephen with the face of an angel. <laughs> And we're going to see that Stephen now is going to give an opportunity to give a defense. Uh, and he is going to give a, a history lesson. We're going to see that next time in, in chapter 7. And, and he is going to bring them through their whole journey of faith and, and show how it all ultimately points to Jesus Christ. But as we close uh, here today, I want to draw our attention back to verse 2. Back to where it says that then the twelve summoned the uh, multitude of the disciples and said it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and, and serve in tables. They were consumed with busyness. Have you ever found yourself busy? Have you ever found yourself with more things to do and, and less time than necessary to, to get it all done? I, I believe that we live in a more frenetic pace than, than any culture has ever lived before. We, we now live 24 hours, seven day a week. We are in information overload, trying to keep up with the speed of change. Technology changes so rapidly, and, and we find ourselves in this, in this place of just uh, the tyranny of busyness and and the disciples, they found themselves in that same place. And what they needed to do is the same thing that each and every one of us needs to do, and, and that is to prioritize. We, we need to take and to make an order to the incredible,
incredible number of, of decisions and tasks that, that pull on us. The organizational experts speak about the importance of having to-do lists, uh, to be able to record and to capture, to be able to uh, then prioritize. And, and there's many different ways of doing it, but, uh, but they normally will respond in some way of making a list of everything that you need to do and then going through that list a second time and assigning it a number between one and three, uh, one being the most important and, and three being less important. They say that if everything is of the equal importance, then nothing is important. And, and so they need to be sequenced. They say that after you have put them through the, the one, two, and three, you go back to the number ones and you, you start to prioritize them with A, Bs, and Cs. And, and then the A, Bs, and Cs of the two and the A, B, Cs of threes. And, and this here now gives you a, a roadmap to be able to keep your priorities straight. To make sure if you don't have enough time to get everything done, that what does get done is intentionally the most important things that need to be done. That's exactly what the, the disciples were looking at when they are now being called to administrate uh, in the distribution to the, the widows. They, they pulled back and looked at everything that they were responsible for and whether or not they had the time to be able to do something that was less important to, because if they're gonna do something additional that is less important, it's gonna come at the expense of something that is more important. And we don't wanna trade the more important for the less uh, important. Each and every one of us, we have to determine on a daily basis what's the most important. What's the most important thing for you to do and how are you going to spend your time? It's interesting to me that every single one of us gets the exact same amount of time. We get 24 hours in a day. We get 1,440 minutes in a day. We get 86,400 seconds, <laughs> except today we're missing an hour, but uh, every other day that, that, that's the, the amount. Uh, but how are you gonna spend your 86,400 seconds? That's all you get to today. And each and every one of us looks at that amount of time and we're going to decide how much time is going to go to eating, how much time is going to work, how much time is going to entertain ourselves, how much time we are going to spend in fellowship with one another, how, many, how much of that time you're going to spend in sleeping and, and all of these things. Here's the amount of time that you get. How are you going to divide up that time with, with all of the various different poles that, that go on in your life? And so the need to prioritize, to make sure that, that the most important thing stays the most important thing in your life. What is the most important thing? What's the single most important thing part of our day or what should be. I am going to propose to you and suggest to you that the single most important thing that there is in each and every day is to spend time with God. To spend time in the Word of God. That everything else is secondary to that. 
When Jesus was asked, what's the single most uh, important of all of the law that had been given, it was easy. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the, the first and most uh, important priority for each and every one of us. To be able to spend time with God is the most uh, important thing in our lives. But oftentimes, uh, that can be relegated to, to if we have enough in time and to making that a luxury instead of a, a priority. I'm so busy that I, that I really haven't had time to be able to, to spend in the word with God. And, and when we're too busy for God, then we're too busy. Because what we are doing is we are trading the most important to accomplish uh, the lesser important. And, and it's an issue of um, priorities. I would propose to you that, that spending time in the Word of God is the single most important uh, activity and use of time that there is uh, when we manage the number of seconds that are in the day. It is the Word of God that changes us. Amen? It is spending time in the Word of God that transforms us. You see, the Word of God is where God says that I will meet with you. I will meet with you. And you can meet with me no longer at the temple. In the old days when the Jews wanted to meet with God, they went to the temple. Because there, in the presence of the Holy of Holies, was the Shekinah glory of God, was the physical manifestation of God here upon this earth. And when you really wanted to get serious about meeting with God, you went to the temple, you went to the house of the Lord. But now, in the new covenant, it is the word of God. We meet in God, in the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was in God, and He was in the beginning with Him. And all things were created through Him and by Him. And apart from Him, not one thing that was created was created. It is in the Word of God where we meet with God. The sweetest and best part of Adam and Eve's day was in the cool of the evening. Do you remember? when they were still in the garden and they walked with God in the cool of the evening. They had communion, they had fellowship. They, they went on a stroll through the garden with God. How awesome is that? I think of the song, I, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear as he whispers in my ear, unlike, any that or any has ever known. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. It's that, that meeting time with God is the, is the most important part to, of the day to be able to experience, listen, to be able to experience his presence. His presence. When you love somebody, what a blessing it is just to come into their presence. You don't even need to say anything. You don't even need to do anything just to be in their presence. To be in the presence of God, to be connected to God. That, that happens in, in the Word of God. And it happens when we read the Word of God. And it happens when we read the Word of God, listen to this, not to study the Word of God, but we read it devotionally. See, there's a big difference between how you read the, the Word of God. 
when you read the word of God to study the Bible. Bible study, I think, is, is so important because we're commanded to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you're commanded to grow in your knowledge, your understanding of Christ, the life of Christ, the way that our salvation works. The Bible tells us to, to be fully equipped, ready to be able to give an answer to anybody for the reason, for the hope that is uh, inside of us, uh, that we wanna be workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly being able to handle the, the word of God. We wanna be meat eaters, not milk drinkers, and grow into solid, mature believers. And, and that happens only by studying the word of God. That doesn't happen just you know, all by itself. But, but we are told by God to, to grow in that. He gave us the capacity to know and to understand. But you can read a biography of, of Abraham Lincoln. You can read all of the biographies of Abraham Lincoln. You can know every single piece of information about Abraham Lincoln and never have met Abraham Lincoln. You see, Bible study is when you read the word of God and you focus on what you don't understand. That's Bible study. You read it and it says that they went from Jericho to Jerusalem and you go, hey, I wonder how far Jericho is from Jerusalem. And you look it up, oh, it's X number of miles and it's an elevation change of, uh, of this and it's down, Jericho's down the Jordan Valley and yeah, Jerusalem's up on Mount Sinai. And now, what are you doing? You're learning, you're, you're growing. You, you focused on what you didn't know and now you know about that. That's Bible study. That's the place to be able to ask questions and to be able to have iron sharpen iron. But devotional reading is completely different. Devotional reading, when you do your devotion, when you open up the word of God to meet with God, it's word of God speak to me now. God, talk to me. My heart is, is open. I've come to meet with you today. And you don't focus on what you don't know. You focus on what you absolutely completely understand. What hits you right between the eyes when, when you're reading a passage and God goes, you know that's you, don't you? And you're like, oh, Lord. And he begins to minister to you. And when the Lord begins to minister to you, just stop reading. And just now, have a conversation. Let God talk to you. When God talks to you, he'll talk to you in, in, in what sounds like your own voice. It will be in, in thoughts and illumination and truth. And he'll begin to bring up people and situations and, and things that we didn't maybe handle in the best manner or fashion. And, and he is building us up and, and teaching us and, and encouraging us. And, and that is the most important part of a person's day. You see, what is heaven? What, what happens after we die? We come into the presence of God uninterrupted. See, right now we get to come into the presence of God, but it, it gets interrupted. <laughs> but one day, we are gonna come into the sweetness of his presence without ever having to leave the sweetness of his presence. Devotions are time of coming into the sweetness 
of his presence. It's interesting that, you know, we have the guide, the through the word guide, two chapters a day. Here's an organized, you know, plan for us all, all to read. But there are many times that I don't get past one or two verses and the Lord starts speaking to me and, and that's it. The rest of my devotions is just the, just the Lord showing me things about myself and uh, about my family and my relationships and starts to put people on my heart of uh, who he wants me to reach out to and what he wants me to do. And by the time I've done, I have my to-do list now for the, the day that's been given to me by God. I had a, one already. <laughs> and then I put that at the top of my list. We only have X amount of time, every single one of us. Every single day, we're going to choose how we're going to spend the same number of seconds that every single one of us has. But we are going to be transformed and blessed by the time that we spend in the presence of God. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, when he comes down, he's glowing. A visible, physical manifestation of having spent time in the presence of God. When you spend time devotionally reading the Word of God, you are going to be changed by that time that you spend. And that time that you spend with God will become the favorite time of the entire day. God says, be still and know that I'm God. Quiet yourself down. Open up the Word of God. Open up your heart. Ask God to speak to you through his scriptures. And he promises that if you seek me, you will find me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction of, uh, of taking and setting priorities and making sure that, God, that we make you our first and priority and spending time uh, with you. So, Lord, would you continue to mold us and fashion us and, and change us in your presence is the fullness of joy. May we experience more and more of your presence on this side of eternity, Lord, until we stand face to face with you forever. Father God, thank you for loving us, saving us, blessing us, washing us, teaching us. Thank you for being long-suffering and patient and, and kind. And, and thank you for desiring relationship with us. May we be drawn by your loving kindness into your presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.